Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in our workshops that hovers around a given theme. They happen once per eight-week session every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the Draft 27.0 was The Mystery, The Horror, and the draftees were Kobe Chubb, Young Adult Novel, Mark Springer, Apocalyptic Lit, Celeste Colgan, Short Story, and Sarah Fardy, Advanced Fiction. My name is Mike Henry. Thank you for coming to the Draft 20... Is it 8.0? 27. 27. Which means we've had 26 of these things. It's been a gorgeous day. My goodness. Um, and it's going to be a really wonderful, horrific, and mysterious night tonight. So I'm pretty excited about that. The draft always has a theme. And tonight's theme is the mystery and the horror. And to get us warmed up, I just wanted to read a poem which has both, both mystery and a certain kind of horror, not macabre horror, but um, I'd say um, parental, parental <laughs> horror, which is really the worst kind of horror there is, I think. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, um, this is by one of my favorite poets who just passed away recently. His name is C.K. Williams. Anybody fans of C.K. Williams? Yeah, all right, excellent. It's about a mother, a mother-son relationship, and the last line is in italics, which I mean, which I take to mean as um, strangely ironic. The whole poem is strangely ironic. It's called "The Cup." What was going through me at that time of childhood, when my mother drinking her morning coffee would drive me wild with loathing and despair? Every day her body hunched with indignation at having had to leave its sleep, her face without its rouge and almost mortal pale. She'd stand before the stove and wait until the little turret on the coffee pot subsided. Then she'd fill her cup and navigate her way across the kitchen. At the table she'd set the cut cup down in its saucer, pour in milk, sit, let out a breath, charged with some onerous responsibility I never understood, and lift the cup again. There'd be a tiny pause, as though she had consciously to synchronize her mouth and hand, then her lips would lengthen and reach out prehensile as a primate's tail, and seemed to grasp the liquid with the sputtering suctioning of gravity imperfectly annulled, then grimacing as though if it were molten metal she was bringing into herself, always grimacing, I'd think. Did she never know what temperature the stuff would be? She'd hold out a spoonful just behind her teeth before she'd slide it thickly down. Thickly, much too thickly. She must have changed its gravity in there to some still more viscous, lava-like elixir. (laughs) Then there'd be a grateful lowering of her shoulders. Also then her eyes would lift to focus on a point behind my head, as though always then a thought had come to her that needed rarer ranges of reflection. She'd do that twice. All that 
always twice and put the coffee down. In its porcelain cauldron, the military brownish broth would sway. Was her passion for it going to make it boil again and finally come to rest? As I never came to rest, as I had to watch, I knew the interval by heart. Her hand come down to it again, her head lower to it again, that excruciating suction sound again, her gaze loosening again. I'd be desperate, wild, my heart would pound. There was an expression then, to tell on someone. That was what I craved, to tell on her, to have someone bear witness with me to her awful wrong. (laughs) What was I doing to myself or she to me? Oh, surely she to me. We've all had mothers, and they're wonderful. I love, we all love our mothers, but there's always a certain mystery and perhaps a little horror. I guess it depends on your relationship. Anyways, enough about my relationship with my mother. Let's get on to the readers. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Okay, first up, we have um, Erica Krauss, who's going to introduce her student, Sarah. Um, Erica is a cornerstone, a pillar of the House of Light. Um, she keeps the harbor safe in wild, crazy storms and hurricanes. That's the metaphor. I'm going to stop right there. Um, uh, <laughs> she's going to be teaching. Um, there's, an, there's a session, session starting soon, right, in October. Yeah, I should know this, right, yeah. So um, she's going to be teaching the Boulder Advanced Fiction and Short Story Workshop. I think there's a couple spots available, probably maybe one or two, so... Um, Keep that in mind. Please welcome to the stage Erica Krauss. I thought you weren't a fiction writer, um, but thanks for that intro. I am really proud to introduce Sarah Fardy to you today. Um, Sarah began taking workshops with me when she was 22, right? Um, 21, 22? 21, 21, sorry. Um, She was a new graduate from CU. And I was immediately struck with the force of her vision and her will and how prolific she is. I mean, Sarah writes. She came into my workshop being like, yeah, my last novel that I finished, da 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 She's completed several already and a score of short stories that um, continually always uh, captivate the workshop because they sent around this, um, this, this place called the Carnival of Mayhem where uh, it's this dystopian carnival with, like, really dark carnies who, um, and, and people, like, trade their lives and their body parts and souls for their desires, which are also wonderfully twisted. Um, the story she's about to read tonight is a, a really unusual story for Sarah. Um, it came from an anecdote she told in class, and after which everyone immediately begged her, like, please, please, write this story. This is, this is too unbelievable to be true. Um, her work is usually um, urban fantasy with, it, like, a, I'd say, a touch of the grotesque, right? So um, when she writes realism, it's really real. So you have a treat ahead of you. Um, I think the best art makes us question ourselves, and um, I laughed so hard at this story, it made me question whether or not I was a sociopath. So, um, 
true. And、uh, I feel like it is my duty to let you know that the bathrooms are behind you, <laughs> behind, just in case you you might you know be tempted to like pee yourself laughing <laughs> or throw up.、Um, if it's both, you know, take a bucket. But.、Um, <laughs> So, but it's it, it, you know truly is I've never heard a story like this ever in workshop before, and I I hope to again, but I, I just don't think I could because unless Sarah's there,、um, Sarah graduated ma- magna cum laude from CU with a double major of anthropology and neuroscience, and she's now working toward her PhD in biological anthropology. Sarah just、um, she just got her first lit ma- literary magazine publication.、Um, it's a carnival of mayhem story called Linnea's Hunt. And it was just published in Bards and Sages Quarterly, available online、um, this month. She also received an honorable mention in the 2015 Writers of the Future contest.、Um, she just turned 24 eight, eight days ago, and、um, and this is her first reading. So please join me in welcoming Sarah Fardy. No pressure, right? Like, okay, first time with a microphone, so hopefully that's good. <laughs> Goodbye, Mr. Rat. Just get a good grip, they said. It's simple, they said. Don't think too much about what you're doing, and remember, it's for science. For science, as if that made the job easy. I adjusted my hold, hoping to get the rat's head deeper in the divot between my thumb and forefinger. He swiped his tiny nails in a hopeful attempt to sprint from my hand into the air. He squeaked when I squeezed, and I jumped. I clapped my second hand under his belly, his hot stomach swelling and fluttering against my palm. Breathe. Our clean room was the size of a large walk-in closet, with additional rat bedrooms behind locked doors. Most of the space was taken by steel tables and a chemical hood. The sink was buried in one corner of the sunken wall. It was only a foot from the cage to the sink, but with the trash can full of bloody napkins and the bustle of graduate students carrying heads and headless bodies, it seemed like a hefty trek. Either that, or the rat was projecting. <laughs> One of his nails caught my glove. It tore, and I pretended not to see my skin peeking through it. Incoming, Ella announced, allowing me to pause before tossing her napkins and rat remains into the trash. I caught a glimpse of intestine, blue stretched over brown. Before the rustle of trash and landing thud of the body signaled clear passage, blood didn't breach the outside of the sink, but splattered the inside and settled along the metal drain. A doll-sized guillotine waited in a crimson pool. Around its metal base, a curled paw drifted like an abandoned rowboat. It was evidence of my earlier attempt. Before the shakes and distrust set in, the rat made another lurch. His squeak more of a scream as my hand reflexively clamped. I'm sorry, you poor furry bastard. <laughs> the white on his head was split with a crusty scab, stitches buried deep in the dried blood and obscured by new tufts of fuzz. I hadn't drilled the holes in his skull or given him injections, but I'd be the one to free him of his invaded head. Labeled paper towels and tubes were organized on the black countertop around the sink. I checked the numbers against the one sharpied on the rat's tail, the ink broken and worn during his six-week stay. Hurry up, Andy! Laura pulled another duo of cages from the nearest rat room. All right, Mr. Rat. I shoved his face into the blood of his cage mate. 
The guillotine's diamond opening seemed impossibly small as I maneuvered the scabbed, squirming head into it. Goodbye, Mr. Rat. I slammed the lever down with more than enough force to sever its vertebrae, but when I looked down, a head didn't wait in the sink. The skin of the rat's face dangled off the tip of his nose. (laughs) The exposed flesh was briefly pink and porous with red spots before the blood swelled and overtook muscle and bone. Bile squirted onto my tongue, oatmeal and blueberries globbing in my throat. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) I realized the beeping in my ears was the rat. He cried in piercing little notes. (laughs) Okay. He cried in piercing little notes as he tried to tear out of my hand. My fingers wouldn't respond, giving him just enough leverage to pop his head out of the security hold. Andy, Christ! Laura shoved me out of the way, but between her elbows and the steel table, I was caught against the wall. The faceless rat scampered through the mess, (laughs) blinded by the stream of blood coming from his scalp. (laughs) He tripped on his own skin, shits popping out of him, and rolled onto his side. The severed hand clutched at his ear in an attempt to pass sympathies. Mr. Rat's eyes stared up, pink compared to the red around him. I failed you, Mr. Rat. (laughs) Laura got her deft hands around him, deft to his cries, and sliced his head off. Tube. I stared at her, the word foreign. Andy, pass me the fucking tube. I turned to where her hand tried to go. A rack of clear tubes with blue caps waited. I handed her the one that had a funnel in it. She positioned Mr. Rat into it, giving his body gentle pulses to drain him. Blood ran down the clear tube, mixing with droplets of anticoagulant. She handed me the head and body on separate napkins, plopped them into my hands. She had managed to get the skin back onto his face. A faint pink line marked where the face and scalp had torn, visible even with the bloody fur and black scab. I re-swallowed my breakfast on the way to the table. I put the head down first, lonely on its napkin. The torn flesh slowly slipped down, wrinkling above a pink nose and folding over whiskers. Usually the head was less unsettling than the body. It was surprising how hard it was to identify what was wrong with a headless body. You kept searching and searching, and then realized it had no face, no way to meet your gaze. It's okay, Mr. Rat. It's over now. Ellis stroked his belly, humming and drifting, while the rat's still-determined body came to terms with his death. She handed me a pair of scissors. You okay to do this? I considered Mr. Rat faceless, more importantly headless, and covered in blood and semen. I nodded to Ella because that was the appropriate answer, because this was how I would answer my questions, their questions. We would get insights and tug at one thread in the tangle of the natural world. I poked his belly with forceps. His abdomen jerked, but the contact didn't send his tiny legs into a fury of motion. I pinched the skin and lifted, waiting for the slight pop as the abdominal muscle beneath peeled away. I snipped the flesh and made the appropriate incisions, digging through the warm cavity for adrenals, liver, and up beneath the ribs for a piece of thymus. Next to me, Ella jammed pliers into the faceless rat's eye sockets, forcing pink eyeballs out. She scissored into his remaining vertebrae. I listened for a crack of skull. A chip of bone struck my cheek. My oatmeal began another journey north. (laughs) Breathe. For science. (laughs) Thank you, guys.
I'm never ever gonna eat oatmeal again. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was wonderful. It was memorable. Yes, it was absolutely amazing. Oh boy. Okay. Um, uh, next up, we have uh, Christopher Merkner, who will be introducing Celeste. Um, they have never met before tonight um, because um, Christopher is teaching an online class, um, which I think is really interesting. Of course, the funny thing about online classes, you think you know people will be living in Malaysia or Russia or something, but most of our online students live here in Denver within you know half a mile from Lighthouse, but that, I think I, I find that interesting. Um, uh, Christopher will be teaching a couple of classes um, this October. Um, one is Lydia Davis is a reading as a writer class. Um, then he'll be also be teaching an online advanced short story, which has a couple of spots left, I am told. So please give it up for Christopher Merkner. Hi. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. It's been a pleasure to teach uh, now my second class online. Um, yeah, it's pretty special. And it's true. I hadn't really, while driving here, or even, for that matter, preparing in it, at any level for tonight, really considered the fact that I hadn't seen Celeste before. So I stood briefly on the porch and looked around, and that was useless. So, and I, I, I'm only, so I just went in and I sat down and, and I read a little bit uh, inside. And it occurred to me while sitting there reading that this was really odd behavior at a social event. <laughs> And for a moment, I got up and went back on the porch, and I decided that as a parent of two kids, I don't think I've really had much time to sit down and read quietly for a long time. So I went back, and I read a little bit more. And everything seems to have fallen into place just fine. I've never done this on my phone before. I've seen people do this before, and it's, uh, they've always done it very seamlessly, but I don't know how this is going to work for me. We'll see. Uh, so, yes, I'm here tonight uh, very pleased to uh, introduce Celeste Kogan. Does that sound like the right pronunciation? Kogan? Okay. Um, one of the... And Celeste will be uh, reading from her fiction tonight, a short story, a segment of her short story. Uh, and I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about that. Um, but one of the cool things about teaching online is that everything that your students say in workshop is recorded and kept... <laughs> And that's exciting and awesome. And Celeste is an amazing writer of short fiction, which she's about to share with you right now. But she's also an awesome critic. Don't fade on me. She's also an amazing uh, critic. And um, some of her remarks this semester have been absolutely awesome. And uh, so I wanted to share just a couple of those real quick ones for you. Just two. Just two. Just two. No, this isn't a joke. I'm, this is really good stuff. She's also very funny. That would have been better if I brought in her funny stuff. But your, your smart stuff is so good. <laughs> This is one of the stories in the workshop she wrote. The next step is, as Chris and Wes have suggested, these are two other students in her workshop, our workshop, focusing on what uh, is the story. Most interesting is the implicit comparison of the Ute Ute Indians Treaty Negotiation negotiator, Juan Martin Martinez, to Calvin, the broker of historical communities. We all know what happened to the Utes at the hands of their friends. These historical communities are likewise in for a change in some cases, disastrous change. Try to imagine what will happen to Pata de Lupo at the hands of the Coopers. <laughs> pretty good. And it's, you know, it's pretty good stuff. I mean, we're, we're broadening. We're broad, you know, there's no, no mention of commas here or anything. I mean, this is good stuff. And this is, this is, <clears throat> this is my favorite. This, is the be- this one blew me away. This was just this, I guess it wasn't this week, it was last week. 
whoo, exclamation point, whoo. I kept wondering whether this story is somehow a riff on In Praise of Folly, as all the characters are allegorical, as Erasmus would have it. (laughs) And then you realize you're just radically ill-qualified to be teaching this class. (laughs) And the the whole curtain comes down and... Like her critical work, uh, Celeste's fiction is smart, strong, and it's driven, and it's complex. She is a Wyoming native. She grew up at the base of the Wind River Range and on the border of the Wind River Reservation. She started out as an academic, loving literature, loving teaching it, but was often drawn into administration. She has worked in small business, government, large business, and for a think tank. Through all, she wrote stories and essays, and when she stopped working for wages and could live anywhere she wanted, she returned to Wyoming, where she is now where she now identifies herself as a full-time writer, hanging out with her dog, and hiking on mountain trails. I'm really lucky to have had Celeste in the workshop. Uh, this We're wrapping up right now. As she said, we're almost done. <laughs> that was just a minute ago. Uh, and, uh, and indeed, she's right, and it's been a real pleasure, and I'm so happy to have her uh, reading tonight. Well, goodness, as... Uh Christopher says, when you're online, you just, you know, you just can't say things like you say in your regular workshop. <laughs> Never thought about that before. And I don't know how I possibly get more horrified than uh, <clears throat> we just heard, but <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll try to, we'll, we'll do our best up here. <clears throat> and this is a short story uh, called Signals. At age nine... Cam's job was to catch the chicken that was flopping down the alley with its head cut off. She had to run after it. Most often it tried to fly. Its runs and short hops splattered blood on the gravel. She was to pick it up and drop it in a tub of boiling water. Mother said it was women's work. She insisted that Cam do it. Mother wiped the hatchet clean on her apron and put it back in its sheath. She threw the head its beak yellow, combs and wattles red, its eyes open to buck, her eager bull terrier. Then she sat on a stool, straddled the tub, and fished the headless bird out, clenched it between her knees, and plucked out all the feathers. Mother told Cam that next year she would teach her how to separate out the gizzard, the liver, and the heart. All the rest went into buck's bowl. Cam never learned. By that time, mother, Buck, and the chicken coops were gone. Cam grew up wondering about beheadings. In her world history class, she studied drawings of the French guillotine and the baskets that collected the heads. The drawings showed the workers standing by to clear the platform for the next victim. Cam wondered, did those workers have to wait until the bodies quit jerking around? Outside of town, there was a plaque that told the story of a hanging gone bad. Vigilantes pushed a condemned man off a railroad bridge with a rope tied around its neck. His head came off, and the man, his hands tied behind his back, ran up the embankment almost to the top. (laughs) At night, she has those pictures in her mind. 
She has sounds in her ears. Now in her 40s, Cam stays balanced by sleeping during the day when she has no nightmares, and at night she keeps books for small business clients. She gets by. In order to concentrate in the night, she fills the walls of her home office with music and walks slowly on a treadmill under her stand-up desk. That helps. But the exercise machine that she really likes is a Stairmaster. It's in the basement. It makes her think she's climbing a tree. She loves that feeling. It's a feeling of going somewhere safe. It feels like sometimes Roy is climbing right beside her. He was her best friend, and they were together almost every day of elementary school. They walked together. He didn't go to school the day that Mother went away. That day, everything turned inside out. Although it began normally enough, when Cam came home from school, she saw Mother in a place that Jerry, her brother, called La La Land. Cam called it something else. Mother was in a different dimension. Mother argued loud with someone she could not see or no one else could see. That day, Mother was in front of the kitchen sink, cutting up a chicken, shouting and glaring out the window. You think you have me, but you don't. Come closer and I'll hack your head off. She waved and poked a butcher knife at the phantom. Her face was red and her jaw clenched. Cam flattened herself against the kitchen wall, her heart in her throat. She inched down the hall. As soon as she got to her bedroom and blocked the door, she felt relieved. This was going to be a free afternoon. She could leave. She put out Roy and her signal. It was a blue bandana hung from a nail that she'd driven in the window casing. She watched Roy's window. If he hung out a blue bandana, too, he was ready to meet her. If he hung out a red, he couldn't come. She hoped that he'd be free to go to the big sandstone cave. It was fall and not yet cold in central Wyoming. The cottonwood and aspen leaves had turned, but the sun was still warm. It was a great day for a long bike ride with Queenie, Roy's black lab, loping behind. They could ride out into the sand hills, run into the big cave, and pretend they were being attacked by rustlers or Indians. Cam would lie down and sleep in the cave. Roy would fetch it with, play fetch with Queenie, guarding the entrance. He'd wake her up when it was time to go home. She waited. No bandana appeared. She slipped out the front door and walked by Roy's house, peering in the window. The shade was gone down. She didn't know what that meant. She dashed to Roy's towering, weeping willow, their favorite climbing tree. She jumped up, grabbed a hold of the lowest branch, and scaled the trunk with her feet until she could lift her chest up over the branch. Then the climb was swift, a grab of a branch here, a place of a foot there, easy going until she was almost to the way top. She and Roy had agreed where the last of the strong branches were. Although he was a year younger, he was much bigger. He was smart, strong, and athletic. And as she thought about him now, very grown up for his age, she wonders now how they could have been such good friends. She was a skinny, shy kid, never seen more than a day at a time. She had no plans. She just wanted to get through each day. Roy wanted to be a lawyer. After she climbed high into the tree, she wrapped her body around a strong branch like a sloth and observed the world below. It was a great view. 
She fingered the slim willow leaves. The back door of Roy's house opened, and he came out with his mom. Cam broke off a stick and dropped it, hoping to hit him, but the stick missed, and Roy didn't look up. He walked like he was going to stumble, leaning into his mom. They went into the garage. Their Dodge sedan backed down the gravel driveway. Roy was sitting in the front seat. Did he have the flu? She decided she'd stay in the tree until Dad came home. The sun was starting to set. Lights were turning on in kitchens throughout the block. No lights came on in Cam's house. What could be taking Roy and his mother so long? In a while, Dad drove down the alley and turned his pickup into the garage. He went into the house and snapped on the lights. Lights came on in her room, Jerry's room, and then flicked off. Lights came on in her parents' bedroom and stayed on. In a while, Dad went out the back door, stood in the alley, and gave out his famous whistle that could be heard all over town. Pretty soon, Jerry pedaled up the alley with his headlight shining. She saw Dad and Jerry talking across from each other in the kitchen table. She was getting cold. She felt her way down the tree, branch by branch. All through dinner, Dad looked steadily at Mother. Mother was quiet, slowly eating fried chicken. Jerry acted like nothing had happened. Cam pushed potatoes around on her plate. After dinner, Mother went to bed, and Jerry did homework at the dining room table. Dad came to help Cam with the dishes. You know, Cam... Your mother isn't happy unless she's mad at someone. He smiled and punched her lightly on the arm. Don't be afraid. She sleeps these spells off. Everything will be all right tomorrow morning. Cam wanted to tell him that it was more. She didn't know how to give a name to it. Instead, she said, Dad, you remember the mother accused Aunt Betty of stalking her and that she thought Aunt Betty was a communist spy who was going to turn her into the Russians and have her shot? Ah, Ponkins. Mother was just going through her change of life. She doesn't talk that way now. (laughs) Cam concentrated on scraping out the burned-out chicken skin on the frying pan. She couldn't say anything more. Dad told her several times not to lock her bedroom door because if there were a fire, no one could get into her room to let her out. She thought about that, but she always locked her door. She was awake most of the night. She'd know if there had been a fire. She listened to night sounds. Dad was a deep sleeper. He didn't know about the sounds, about Mother's whispers as she roamed around the house, about Buck's toenails clicking behind her, how Mother stopped, and then Buck stopped. Jerry slept hard, too. In the dark early morning of that inside-out day when the lights from the sheriff's car and the ambulance spun in front of the house, Cam sat on her bed looking out the window at the street. Voices over the police radio blasted through the night. Neighbors stood on the sidewalk with coats over their pajamas. Dad rattled her locked door and shouted, Cam, are you okay? Yes, was all she could say. Just stay there, Cam. In a little while, she watched Dad walking beside the stretcher until it was loaded into the ambulance. She knew it was Jerry. She could see his bare foot and the hem of his pajama pants. Black straps held tight the hard plastic over his body. Dad followed the sheriff's car in the pickup. She stayed where she was until Aunt Betty's voice asked her to unlock the door. She did. 
And Betty pulled her through the door, hugged her, and told her to put in put some underwear and clothes in the sack she held. She took Cam to her house, where Cam climbed into the bed in her cousin's room. He was away at college. Cam wanted to talk to Roy the next day, but when she called, she found out from his mother that he was going to have surgery to remove a brain tumor. Aunt Betty let her call his mom every day, but Roy... Was ever was always too sick to talk. He never came to the phone, ever. When he went to the hospital a few weeks later, he didn't come back. On the stairmaster, master, Cam thinks about being in that weeping willow. The weeping willow memory is all mixed up with memories of that black early morning. She remembers hearing three thwacks, hearing buck bark. She remembers later seeing Mother walking toward a white van with a big man in blue scrubs. He held her by the elbow. Cam wonders what Jerry's bedroom looked like after everything happened. She thinks even now about how the blood would have been spewed all over the walls, how his hand and knee prints would have been on the floor and into the hall, how Buck's paw prints would have followed. That's it. Thank you, Celeste. That was beautiful. I don't know about you guys, but I, I detect some themes here. <laughs> Who knew the mystery and the horror could involve mothers and decapitation? That's great. I love that. Um, next up, Victoria Hanley, um, who teaches our YA classes, um, will be introducing Corey. Um, Victoria is one of our most popular teachers. Um, I get... Um, I get registration notifications when people sign up on the website. Um, I, I get every single one of them, so I know who's been naughty and who's been good, like I feel like Santa Claus. Um, and um, I can immediately tell when um, our staff has put up one of Victoria's classes because immediately registrations start flowing through, like literally like two minutes after the class goes live. It's kind of interesting. So... Um, Victoria is going to be teaching um, a craft of writing, writing the YA novel. Her regular workshop is full. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so uh, if you're interested in writing YA novels, especially you guys out there, we were just talking earlier, um, she only has women in her class. Where's all the YA novel guys? Come on, guys. It's manly. It's masculine. He said in a really high voice. Okay. <clears throat> Please welcome Victoria Hanley. Well, um, after rat and chicken beheadings and guillotines, I think Corey's going to be a little tame here. All we have is death. <laughs> so, yeah, Corey's going to be reading her uh, YA mystery, and YA presents many craft challenges because it needs to be so fast-paced and convincing. And mystery also presents many craft challenges because the mystery needs to be sustained. So very few people can do both, and she is doing it. She is writing a YA mystery that everybody loves. And Corey has taught overseas for a couple years at a military base where she learned how to have her car checked for bombs. <laughs> um, no relation to this book. 
and she is a teacher librarian. I don't need to remind everybody here how writers feel about librarians. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she not only reads and reads and reads and reads, she also runs and runs and runs and runs because she runs uh, half marathons and uh, apparently has the self-discipline needed to complete a novel. So she's going to be reading the beginning, Corey Chubb. Thank you, and I just want to uh, note that I did try to get into her next class, and I registered 14 hours too late after it had been opened, so... Prologue, 18 years ago. She didn't feel a thing, no remorse or anger, as he fell, fell, fell. She simply noted the speed and rotation, like a scientist examining liftoff, until the ensuing silence blended with the waning of the day. The ravine itself was not deep by any standards, maybe 20 or 30 feet at the most, but he had propelled off the edge, almost flying for a few precious seconds before gravity took hold, sucking him down, down, down. She stared blankly at the body lying below, arms and legs positioned at odd, unnatural angles. A movement off to her right caught her attention. She remained still, watching from the edge of the ravine, as her companion joined her. His profile was dressed in shadow as he gazed downward while the sun shone behind him, edging him in bright, daffodil-like rays. His fists kept clenching and releasing, but then he turned to face her. She braced herself. The sun was so blinding that she couldn't see his eyes, which gave her a curious feeling of relief. When he spoke, his voice was hushed and even. Whatever anger still lurked was now well hidden. If he's found here, they'll investigate. Someone will find out. But we didn't do any, she protested. It doesn't matter what we did or didn't do. What matters is that it's him. Who's going to believe us? He's been spouting his paranoia for weeks, and now people will wonder. His eyes roamed to her belly, seeing what was still invisible to everyone else. He let his sentence hang. Shut up. Don't say it. Not now. Her hand automatically dropped to her stomach, which was still flat and taut. She was so tired. She didn't want to fight or think. I loved him too, you know. She refused to speak, instead focusing on the rim of the ravine and the glinting brush that lay beyond. He seemed to be waiting for her to say something, but the seconds began to build, making the silence even more profound. The sigh that came from him was long and lonely. I'll go get the truck. We'll take him to the mine. He turned, walking away from her towards the horizon, a blurred black figure framed by the sun that was still lingering an inch or two above the earth's edge. It all seemed like something out of a movie, the final scene where the hero slowly vanishes into the distance while the heroine watches. Only, this wasn't a movie. She wasn't the heroine in the story, not anymore at least, and he wasn't the hero. The hero lay broken on the bottom of the ravine. Was she in shock? That would explain why her emotions were strangely absent, a spigot turned off. She felt a flutter just below her waist, a tiny one like the butterfly kisses her mom had given when she was a child. Her hand reached down to span her abdomen while she pictured the tiny life growing within her. Oops, just lost my place. I promise I'll make it all right, she whispered. A half hour later, he came back with the truck, 
The ravine was shallow enough about a mile away that he would be able to drive to where the body lay. She carefully picked her way down the ravine and stood forlornly out near the dead man. She didn't look at the body, instead watching the truck bounce and sway over rocks and brush until it jarred to a stop close by, throwing a thick cloud of red dust. He jumped down from the battered truck, lithe and nimble, as he approached the body. Grab the blanket in the back. It's in the tool chest. It took her several minutes to spread the blanket, her fingers refusing to do as they were told. Now take his feet. I don't think I can. She gazed at the ground. Blood had pooled and dried into the dirt, the earth thirsty from years of drought. The broken body's limbs resembled puzzle pieces that didn't quite fit, jammed together to form a distorted picture. You can and you will. Now come over here and help. Time is running out. She leaned down and grabbed the ankles, trying to ignore the memories of him, the firm way his lips had felt against hers, his cocky grin so quick to form and just as fast to leave. She shook her head and squeezed her eyes shut, grunting at his dead weight. Together they rolled him up and loaded him into the back of the pickup. Her footsteps were plodding and heavy with the weight of the secret as she headed around to the truck passenger door. Once inside the vehicle, she looked to her left and viewed his profile, so strong and rigid, and realized that she hated being shackled to the man beside her, chained to this moment and the secret that would bind them forever. Once the truck silhouette blended into the vista and the dust had settled, a third person emerged from behind the sagebrush, vowing to one day make them both pay. Chapter 1. Present Day. Harper. For a Tuesday lunch, the diner was packed. I took orders, cleaned tables, refilled drinks, and served meals as fast as I could. The restaurant motto was, give it to him hot and fast. The door jingled. Clarice Richards sauntered in wearing a tight red tank top that revealed lots of cleavage and cutoffs that barely covered her butt. Tanner White followed in his football jersey, puffing his chest like an orange rooster. Clyde followed, looking just as foolish. Elena was last to sit, surveying the room until her eyes caught mine in an aloof stare. Even now, years later, my stomach always did a slow somersault when I saw Elena. We'd been such good friends once. Thank God they didn't sit in my section. All of them were like coal wrapped in shiny Christmas paper, pretty on the outside, hard and brittle on the inside. Waiting on them would have been pure torture. I grabbed a towel off the counter and swiped at an invisible piece of dirt, then did my best to ignore the group as I filled empty glasses of soda and water. Still, when I was clearing off a nearby table, Clarice chose that moment to get all dramatic. Did you hear? she asked in a hushed tone, her voice dripping with honey. What? Clyde asked while they all sat there ready to hang on every lie that came out of Clarice's mouth. Finn Wellington just enrolled at Silver High for senior year. Can you believe it? Tyler choked on his water, and Clyde leaned closer to Clarice. My hand stopped mid-wipe while I wondered why Finn would come back. Really? Have you seen him yet? Clyde asked, his voice like a whiny puppy. No, but it's so hush-hush, you know, like nobody wants to talk about it. Clarice snapped her fingers. I don't know about you all, but I think something stinks. She sniffed for effect and then looked around at their avid faces before continuing. After all this time, our little rich boy has come home. Her grin resembled a cat's as she licked the edges of her lips. My dad's best friend's brother said that he was probably kicked out of private school or that they can't afford it anymore. I bet he's some sort of drug dealer, probably meth or something. Who knows if he has any teeth left? There was a murmur from the table, sounds of fake horror. As I neared their booth, heading to the kitchen, Clarice's voice rose. Hear enough, Harper? Is your heart going pitter-pat for your old boy crush? 
With a stack of plates in my hand, I stood there and my mouth opened before I could stop myself. What I heard was your stupid rumors about a guy who isn't around to defend himself. I looked at Clyde and Thomas. Really? You think Finn's some sort of drug addict because he's back in Silver Springs? Clyde studied his fingernails, and Tyler shrugged but managed to look slightly uncomfortable. Elena kept her eyes on the table, and Clarice just sneered. What had I done? I was still mad at Finn. Maybe I always would be. Four years ago, he'd left me alone in this horrible little town and never even said goodbye. Walking to the kitchen was brutal. I felt all eyes on me, and I hated it. By the time Clarice and her groupies left, the crowd had dwindled down to a few old-timers, a family of four, a couple tables of tourists, and a couple tables of tourists. Clarice threw me a biting glare as a parting gift. Thanks. I couldn't wait for senior year to be over, and it hadn't even begun yet. The bell at the front door rang again, interrupting my thoughts. A tall guy sauntered in, over to the far booth in my section. He was dressed like he came out of an ad for Vogue or something. His white t-shirt hugged him in all the right places. He wasn't built like a linebacker or anything, more like a soccer player, lean and cut. It can't be him. Normally, I didn't believe a word that dripped out of Clarice's slimy mouth, but I couldn't deny the coincidence. I took a deep breath and studied my, to study myself and walked over to the booth, smoothing down the damn wayward hair springing from my pony. A scar, thin but noticeable, started at his temple and arced down his right cheekbone. I knew the exact moment when he got it. Finn. The rumors were more like fact. He'd come back. Of course, Clarice was wrong, too. He didn't look like an addict at all. Her eyes were remote. At, his eyes were remote as he gazed at me. That stung. Come on, Finn. I haven't changed that much. His expression turned into one of curiosity as I stood there saying nothing. I felt heat rush up my cheeks as I searched for something to say that didn't make me sound like an idiot. Hi, w- welcome to Magda's. My, ho- my voice came out high and warbly. So much for playing it cool. I jabbed the menu toward him like a sword. This was turning into an awful day. He took it and slowly opened the menu like it held some great secret. I tapped my foot impatiently. We have two specials tonight. One is carne, one is carne asada with a side of, side of rice, beans, and a tortilla with a bizcochito for dessert. The other is chicken enchiladas, your choice of red or green chili, beans, rice, and flan. I'll give you a minute to decide. Would you like anything to drink? Just water, thanks, he murmured, still reading the menu. Dismissed, I walked back to the kitchen and grabbed a plastic cup, wishing I could throw it at his head. Guess all those years at prep school made him a complete jerk. So what if he happened to be uncomfortably (laughs) good-looking? After scrubbing a nearby table until its pale circa 1980 laminate glistened, I managed to drag myself over to Finn and took his order as calmly as I could. When his dinner was ready, Javier, the cook, rang the bell. I set the plate at Finn's table and left without a backward glance. The clock ticked by with aching slowness. It was worse than Mr. Forbes' English class sophomore year. Finally, Finn finished his food and was lounging back in the booth holding Edgar Allan Poe, The Complete Collection. Huh, nice choice. So, um, do you need anything else? Startled, he looked up and smiled. Nah, I'm good. Just a check, please. I reached into my apron pocket for the receipt and slapped it on the table harder than I intended. Finn jumped a little. I noticed his green eyes had gotten darker, along with his hair, which had gone from dark brown to almost black. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a 20. I snatched the money, careful not to touch his outreach fingers. I lifted my chin. Well, if he couldn't have the courtesy of remembering me, then he wasn't worth my time. I made change and hurried back to the table, feeling a bit calmer. He didn't matter anymore. Carefully, I placed the money on the table. 
Have a nice night, I said, proud that I sounded neutral. Not too friendly, but not rude either. Thanks, same to you. I walked away. Now I could focus on getting my closing chores done and get out of here. But it didn't matter. He stayed reading that stupid book. Sorry, Edgar Allen. No matter how hard I tried to ignore him, he was there in booth number three. Finally, I slid out of the bo- he slid from out of the booth. The doorbell jingled as he opened it. But he paused a moment, finding me across the room. His eyes held mine. It was really good to see you again, Harper. Before I could reply, he was gone. Thank you. Ah, young love. (laughs) With no decapitation. That's awesome. I love that. Fantastic. Phew. Setting a precedent here. Okay. Uh, Last up, we have Mark Springer, who will be introduced by Alexander Lumens. Um, We like to call him Lumens, just because. Sounds cool. Um, He recently was... Did you spend the whole summer there? Three weeks up in the North Pole. Working in Santa's workshop. Um... He's going to be teaching um, a graphic novel class um, and then the craft of graphic novel. Do you see how those two are related um, in the upcoming October session? Who's the, the graphic novel? Who's the reading as a writer class? Is she the one who wrote the, um, what did she write? Are You My Mother? Yes, of course. Yeah, really good stuff. So give it up for Alexander Lumens. Hello, hello, hello. (laughs) So in writing this intro, I neglected two things. One was an actual bio of Mark, uh, which I neglected to ask for. So in lieu of that, I will say that as a part of the apocalyptic writing fiction class that I teach here or taught here this session, we all bonded together as an apocalyptic uh, squad, which I would, I would join with them when the shit hits the fan. <laughs> and it will. <laughs> and number two, the thing that I neglected for some strange reason is just the enjoyment that I had in teaching Mark in the class. And you'll understand why I happened to neglect that. Uh, But it was a a pleasure having him in the course. And every time that he spoke, it just raised the level of the class. And I enjoyed that so much as a teacher. And those teachers out there know what I mean when you have a student like that. So without further ado... uh, There's one kind of student I'm always afraid to have in a class. No, it's not because they're the problem child. And no, it's not because they think they know it all. It's the kind of student that scares me is the kind of student who from day one demonstrates a well of knowledge, disciplined talent, and articulation in the craft of writing. And in my class's case, a well-versedness, I made that up, in all things apocalypse. (laughs) It scares me because he is the kind of student who could be teaching the class. Much to my reward, like the, quote, long shear of light 
and then a series of low concussions, unquote, that details the apocalypse in Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Mark lit up and blew away my writing fiction apocalypse class with his mind as well as his words. His workshop submission began with this short paragraph, a beginning to his post-apocalyptic novel, The Possessors, which he will be reading from tonight. Lightning in a clear blue sky, a thunderclap to crack the bones of the earth. Darkness followed, a gathering roar, his own voice screaming into shattered air. I'm falling, he thought. There was nothing to catch him, nothing to slow his descent. He would be falling forever. I knew I was in the hands of not just a capable writer, but a commanding author. I now leave you in those commanding hands. Please welcome Mark. Thank you, Lumens. Post-apocalyptic novel. Uh, I think a little bit of premise would help, but I'm not going to set up the scene beyond giving you the premise. Um, An environmental cataclysm called the Calamity has destroyed all the civilizations of the Earth except one. The survivors and their descendants live in walled city-states protected by technology they don't understand and cannot repair. Half a century after the Calamity... No, I'm sorry. A century and a half after the calamity, that technology is breaking down. And so, the scene. Naomi followed the footpath through the landscaped gardens until it brought her to a reflecting pool surrounded by redbud trees. The trees stood single file, their bare branches studded with tiny winter buds the color of blood. At the far end of the pool, one tree was missing from the rank a gap filled only by a rotting stump. She left the path and stepped lightly through the dry stalks of last summer's overgrown grasses, searching out the lichen-covered pieces of a broken stone bench near the stump. The stump had once been the tallest of the redbud trees, its limbs too high for even her grandfather to reach. It was here on a late spring day more than 50 years ago when the broken bench stood whole and the red buds blossomed, that her father had promised marriage to her mother. Naomi knew because Benjamin told her when she was a child, and because years later she had witnessed the fury with which her brothers chopped down their parents' promise tree, taking turns, swinging the axe until their shirts were soaked with sweat and their hands bled. She was eleven when it happened. Percy and Timothy were strangers to her even then, both old enough to be her father. She had seen them only once before that day, at her grandfather's funeral, and she had never spoken to them. She watched their approach from the bench under the promise tree, Percy carrying that axe, Timothy following close behind. There was no sound in the garden but the sound of their footsteps, quick and heavy on the gravel path, no wind to stir the trees or disturb the pool. The pool's surface reflected the world in a different dimension. The redbuds lowered their branches toward a sky beneath the water. Her brothers walked upside down. She stood up from the bench and put herself between them and the promised tree. 
Only then did Percy look at her. Get out of my way, he said. She tried to stand her ground, but Timothy shoved her aside. Don't, she said. Please don't. Percy rolled up his sleeves. He gripped the axe and planted his feet against the earth. The first stroke split the bark in a shallow crescent, and the next opened the wound completely. The blade rose and fell, rose and fell. Each blow cut deeper, exposing the heartwood. Naomi began to cry. Her brothers passed the axe back and forth between them for what seemed like hours, heedless of their ruined hands. She would never forget Percy's roar of triumph when the tree finally came down, its canopy shattering the mirror calm of the reflecting pool, the stone bench crushed beneath its trunk. And she would never forget how he continued to hack away at what remained of the stump, his face streaked with tears, blood dripping from the haft of the axe as he raised it over his head and brought it down again and again, while Timothy stood to one side as if in a daze. She had thought Percy wouldn't stop, thought he might continue swinging the axe until he collapsed from the effort. But then he struck a glancing blow near the roots, and the haft broke apart in his hands, and the axe head bounced across the ground, disappearing under the fallen tree. Percy spat and threw down the splintered pieces of the haft and turned away from what he and Timothy had done. You can't stay here, he'd said to her. And he and Timothy had taken hold of her arms with their bloodied hands and marched her back to the house. Her recollection was interrupted by the sound of hurried footsteps on the path. Not her brothers, not today or ever. It was Carter, one of her bodyguards, he approached the reflecting pool at a brisk pace, then slowed when he saw her, a flash of relief visible in his eyes before he once more assumed his official composure. You can't be out here alone, ma'am, he said. Someone from Gridsec needs to be with you at all times. This is my home, she said. There's no danger. So many precautions, so excessive. Her husband was in charge of the power station, not the government. I'm sorry, said Carter, it's protocol. Naomi sighed. The great authority had a protocol for everything. She knelt where the promised tree had fallen 20 years ago and began brushing aside the matted grass. She felt carefully among the tufts until she found the axe head half buried in the soft ground. She dug around it with her fingers and pried it loose. The steel was heavy in her hands, cold and rusted. Carter gave her a puzzled look. Where did that come from, he asked. Vandals, she said. Carter rested his hand on the butt of the pistol holstered at his hip. He turned in a slow circle, scanning the trees and hedges. Naomi rose to her feet. Her dress was wet where her knees had pressed against the damp earth. Relax, she said. It was a long time ago. They're never coming back. Carter seemed not to hear continued to scan their surroundings. She had known him only a few weeks, and in that time he had always been serious and alert. But now the expression on his face was one she hadn't seen before, hard around the eyes, his jaw set tight. It made her wonder how quickly they could get back to the house if they had to. Only the roof line was visible above the trees. 
It seemed smaller and more distant than she remembered from her childhood. What's wrong? she asked. Carter put a finger to his lips, touched it to his ear. Quiet. Listen. She heard only her own breathing, the faint hum of the drone swarm in the distance, the gusting wind. She held her breath. The drones buzzed. The wind rattled the redbud branches, stirred the grasses, sighed through the evergreens. And there was something else, something like the sound of the drones, but rougher and in a different register, higher pitched, getting louder, getting closer. She looked skyward and gasped. It was one of the heavy quadcopter drones, bigger than a car, outfitted with articulated arms, plasma cutters, molecular welders, the ones that looked like they shouldn't be able to get off the ground but somehow flitted from building to building with precision and grace. Except there was nothing graceful about this one. It plummeted toward them from the direction of the cathedral tower, trailing smoke, half-flying, half-falling, out of control. Run, said Carter. But Naomi couldn't take her eyes off the drone. It was coming too fast. They couldn't outrun it. They couldn't escape. Carter grabbed her by the wrist and pulled her toward the reflecting pool. She stumbled through the high grass, dropping the axe head. The drone's keening wail rose to a shriek. They made it to the pool's edge. Carter pushed her in as the drone ripped through the redbud branches overhead. She hit the water and went under amid a shower of sparks. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Mark. Um, Mark is here every morning at like 8.30, writing upstairs in writer's space, which is the old ballroom. Um, he's more um, punctual than I am showing up to work, so um, thank you for that. Let's give one more round of applause to Sarah, Celeste, Corey, and Mark. Wonderful. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.